Have you have you had so any La La Land highway experiences? Yes. So there was a giant musical number on the highway while you were sitting there in traffic. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that scheduled? Do, have, do they just have to like uh, set something up with the city? Like, hey, three o'clock today. It's more like um, the traffic is already so bad, so you might as well be doing it. <laughs> I feel like the real life version of that, if that actually happened, would be just a bad networking thing. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Just like four dudes trying to get everyone else out of their cars so they'll take their business cards. Oh my god, that would be hilarious. Oh man. So the thing that will not leave my brain recently, which I feel like is how most creative things happen, do you agree? Yeah, the, you, everyone has a billion ideas, and the one that stays is the one that happens. Well, not necessarily brilliant. It just won't leave. Yeah. Like, you, you can have a bad roommate who just won't leave, as opposed to a really good <laughs> as opposed to a really good one. But it's inside my brain. Brain mate. Brain mate. But yeah, the thing that just won't leave me recently is the fact that, as you well know, uh, over the course of, like, my late high school through college years, I wrote, like, a few dozen songs, which is not that many, but I still like most of them. Which is impressive, let me which, tell you. That's weird. I feel like I shouldn't. It feels wrong in some way that I still like a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I can think there's probably like literally three songs from high school that I wrote that I like still. And one of them is on the newest Edge Reality album. Hey, which one? Love Struck. Yeah, there we go. Available in all the places. All them places. But yeah, like, and it does concern me sometimes like that I still am attached to some of those songs because, like, does that mean I haven't gotten better and I'm still kind of bad? Because <laughs> I think that some or of the stuff I've done good. I don't know. Because I, I do know that, uh, no, in air quotes, in, you know, the object, objectivity of art, that uh, a lot of my later stuff within that several dozen is, quote, better. But I still like that other stuff, and I spent so much time on it and playing it just like around campus because that's what you do at Belmont is just take your guitar out and play your songs. Not while other people are around, ideally, because I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, you would always go to the birdcage. Uh, or the little courtyard between McCorder and Inman was a favorite post-birdcage because I wanted some light. <laughs> birdcage was dark and held a lot of rainwater. Uh, but yeah, I just... I spent so much time with them, and for me, what I've discovered is that creatively, I can make a thing, like I can, you know, uh, write a song or like write uh, write up a story in a word document. But to me, I don't feel done until it is a finished product in my hand. And that, yeah, that's just a personal thing. I don't begrudge anyone who just like writes something, sends it off, and they're done. So, it's kind of like the, there's a Maya Angelou quote, something to the effect of, you know, uh. There's no greater burden than a story untold, like something in you that you haven't been able to get out. So that's still how I feel about a lot of those songs. And, you know, in college, you and I demoed, like, what, 20 of them? About 20, yeah. yeah. Like, enough for an album, at least. And, you know, just from life and being distracted, frankly, by other things, winds up not doing anything with it. And I kind of just want to before I don't like them anymore. And it will happen. Let's make it happen. <laughs> well, it's already starting is the problem because I, I started looking back at the list of songs and I'm already starting to cut some. Oh. What's the one we recorded with Phil? What's the name of that one? What, Through the Hourglass? Yeah, are we doing that one? 
Uh, yeah, I think we're going to redo that one. That's one you can actually hear. I think it's on my personal SoundCloud. Is that the original mix that's on there or the, that updated one I sent you like a year later? Uh, it's presumably the original one. Cool. <laughs> if you want to hear something that will slightly embarrass Joey. Yes. And yeah, pretty much just me because everyone else did good. Where is it? <laughs> yep, I found it. Perfect. Going to listen to that. I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> you remember when uh, you and Phil decided you were going to play a great prank on me with that mix? <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> so pause this podcast, go elsewhere in SoundCloud and listen to, well, you don't have to do this because it feels like I'm plugging my own thing. If you go listen to that song on my personal SoundCloud, imagine the drum part in that song, remove it and replace it uh, with basically just generic speed metal drums. <laughs> <laughs> it was started off as speed metal and then at a certain point he swung it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. <laughs> and that was the point where, because at first, I, mean, I, I didn't do enough music stuff or work with Phil on drums enough to not know that that was a choice. It seemed a little strange, and also you were making faces. But when the swung part came in, I just went, "All right." Yep. Yeah. So what happened? Me. What happened is Phil and Phil and I finished tracking the legit drums, and we were like, "You know what? Just do one single take pass of doing the stupidest thing you could think of in every section." And then he did that in one take, and it manifested as basically for most of it. And then at the end, he just like takes it and does the swing thing, like Matt said. We did again; it was just as stupid as we could make it. And we basically called Matt in and said, "Hey, we're done. Here it is," and hit play on that take, and kind of stood behind him so he wouldn't see us like trying not to die. Yeah, I guess that's the bad part about not having a poker face is you can't see the person's reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can't keep a straight face in any situation so it didn't work very well but that was funny so like how big of a pile of songs that you wrote and like did not use and will never use do you think you have still available to me maybe like album and a half's worth Mm -hmm. maybe two maybe two albums worth uh most of them never made it out of guitar pro that's fair so when did you start writing songs i we didn't cover that specific aspect necessarily in our makers cast uh Pretty much within the first year of me starting to play guitar, so when I was 12. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much just like I would write whatever felt good to my fingers slash whatever I was learning. Like if I was learning a new technique or whatever, I'd be like, let's make something up with it. Mm. So it's all really bad. Although actually I took the very first riff I ever wrote is on Gone. Oh, cool. I reworked it into a full song. It's um, The Tree in the Park, the main riff in in the first verse of that song is the first riff I ever wrote. Huh obviously arranged way better than the original version but and and that's part of the comfort to me of uh still having these old songs is that i mean when i say i wrote these songs i did that it's like lyrics and chords but not even chords because i play bass (laughs) yeah just roots yeah so i i know that there's a lot that can be done in like arrangement and you know messing around with tempo and things of that nature that can sort of evolve them as well so i don't know yeah i like what we did with through the hourglass i thought that came together really well yeah i thought so too so i'm excited to do it with modern modern knowledge modern us yeah but yeah when i was in a band in high school with charles who you've met my best friend from high school yeah yeah he was the driving force behind the band he was you know uh the guy who wanted to do the band thing because he loved like old music and the garage band ideal 
Sure. And so when I got to a point where I started, uh, you know, I started writing my own songs, and well, the first time I told him, you know, I I wrote this one, but then I didn't like it anymore and threw it away, and he said, "You did it. You got there." <laughs> now you can keep going because you got to the point where you wrote enough songs that you wanted to get rid of one. Yep. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a hump that a lot of songwriters, but also I probably creative people in general, never quite get over. Is the they have to they don't quite realize that your first several things are going to be bad. There's no getting around it. So you have to put in the work to get out of doing bad stuff. Well, and I feel like. Um we all hear that and we all hear like the kill your darlings kind of thing. But what that doesn't get into that I think is more my personal hang up is respecting the value of those early things. Like not just that was bad. So now I can be good. That meant something to you when you made it. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the, the Marie Kondo life-changing magic, whatever. Uh, or like when you want to get rid of something, but you still feel an attachment to it, but you have no use to, uh, to keep it. There's this idea of you thank that thing and then let it go. Hmm. So that that's kind of where I'm at, where even like the, the short stories that I posted on the Maker's Etsy shop a few weeks ago, I kind of know I could do better than mm-hmm. that now, but I still respect where I was at that time and know yeah. that they're not bad. It's, it's kind of a bad metric, but to some, uh, to some degree, just to help myself feel better, I think, have I f- seen something worse than this at a convention? <laughs> and the answer is usually yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. As long, and that's, as, long as, you're, as long as you're not the very bottom. Which, again, is not a good thing just for <laughs> your, your own creative or mental health, but it does make you feel better sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's whatever you need to tell yourself to, to, keep, to not sleep at night. <laughs> It's very easy to put your whole self-worth into the things you make. Oh, absolutely. That That's a whole nother creative talk segment mm-hmm. we can do. My goodness. Yeah, for sure. I was actually talking to, I was talking about with my boss about that actually yesterday because we were both, we were both working on some new music to pitch to people. So we were like talking about like our process and stuff and mm. we were both, we were both like, do you invest your entire self-worth into the, thing, the music you create? And we were both like, yep. <laughs> and this is someone who's been in the business for how long? Uh, two years. Wait, what? Okay, so I was talking to, to Phil's uh, Phil Eisler is my boss, boss, and then his assistant is still above me. So ah, okay, so assistant. like your direct supervisor. Yes. Okay, gotcha. I thought you were talking to your boss, boss, and I was like, wait, what? No, 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 <laughs> no. He's re- he's rarely there. <laughs> that's that's fair. And, and for context, uh, what what does your boss, boss do? He's a composer. He does the music for Empire, which is a show on. Fox. I think it's Fox. It it's a fairly I should popular know, show. I should know I this. I've worked on the show. <laughs> Actually, how does that work? Because you work at the Warner Brothers lot. I do. So, how? Mm, why does he work at the Warner Brothers lot and yet do music for things that aren't owned by Warner Brothers? So that that was very confusing to me too. Because, for instance, the the new the newest Pixar movie was being scored on the Warner Brothers lot over this week. the The studio lots are essentially glorified office spaces. Hmm. When you really get down to it, like they they are just the facilities for making movies. The the fact that they are affiliated with certain production companies and whatever, it's a factor. Like a lot of Warner Brothers stuff will be made on the Warner Brothers lot, but it doesn't mean that only Warner Brothers stuff gets done there. So the studio system as a whole has completely collapsed. In this, in that sense, yeah. Because like, in the case of like scoring music and stuff, there's really only three or four scoring stages in L.A., which blew my mind. Wow. 
because uh, they they've just been closing down because the need for them is much smaller than it used to be because it used to be like 12 mm. back in the day and everyone had their own, every studio had their own orchestra and blah 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 but nowadays there's really only Warner Brothers Fox uh, there's Jim Henson's one which still exists really yep huh I haven't been there yet but occasionally we'll record there's we're spent to record there but we haven't had to and then there's one other one which I can't think offhand what it is but yeah, like Disney doesn't have one even, which is nuts to me. That is. That's very strange. But yeah, when I say studio system, I uh, because I watch a lot of Turner Classic movies, I'm thinking of like, you are tied to this lot. You will only make yeah. movies for this studio kind of studio system. Yeah, no, as far as I've, at least as far as I've seen, that's just not a thing. Because like, it, you know, Phil's office is on the Warner Brothers lot is really what it is. But he's his own guy. He's not, he's not like under contract with Warner Brothers or anything. That's fascinating to me. 